I just knew that, you know, living my life as a victim was not very aspirational and was not going to move me in the direction of, of my dreams and the things that I really wanted in my life. on average read 60 books per year. Many attribute their professional success to this persistent quest for new wisdom and innovative excellence. MentorBox makes it easy for you to develop that same high-achieving habit of lifelong learning. As a person of action, you know that true ingenuity is the result of deep learning and knowledge. And just by listening to this podcast, you are working toward your goals every single day. If you're ready to wholly embrace this mindset, this 1% better every day, then check in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for new episodes. And if you want to dive deeper into the teachings of our guests, become a member at mentorbox.com today. There, you'll find a course from Amber Liliestrom. Amber is a life coach, speaker, and author of the book, Master Your Money Mind. As a dedicated professional and dedicated mother, she has discovered the path to seeking your soul's core passion while supporting a growing family. Warning here, we address sexual assault. Amber is a survivor, and this fact is paramount to our discussion today. The adversity she has faced is part and parcel of who she is today, and everyone can learn something from her inspirational story. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Mentor Box Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lay, content coordinator, and today I'm here with Amber Liliestrom, author of Master Your Money Mind. Amber, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks, Tyler. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Uh, give us a quick pitch on this book, Master Your Money Mind. We've talked about it a whole bunch today after we just did a quick workshop in our studio, and I really love the exercises that you taught and the, the core principles. So give me a quick wrap of what sure. we talked about. Sure. Yeah, thanks. So Master Your Money Mind is the game-changing guidebook to transform your mindset and daily habits to attract massive abundance. And the focus for Master Your Money Mind is really about what it sounds like, your money mind, the way you think about money, how you relate to money, how it's showing up in your daily life experience, and how to transform that if it's not going so great <laughs> in a really nutty little shell for you. And the exercises that we covered together today are really about peeling back the layers on your money story, uh, looking back at your upbringing as it relates to money and how that's showing up in your daily experience, how you might be overlooking the abundance that you already have and ignoring the now reality, which is leading to the future that you desire and how to tweak that a little bit. And yeah, we just dove into some of the, my, also my favorite equation about motion and momentum and mm -hmm. how to become a money magnet and all that. So I'm excited to hear what your uh, folks think about those trainings specifically. Yeah, I think they're going to love it. I was very interested when you first you first came in and we immediately started talking about our upbringings because we are from you know the same area. Here we are in Boston, uh, New Englanders. But you also just mentioned very briefly that a lot of this has to do with upbringing and family and how you learn about money and just you know your origin story with money, if you will. And we talked a lot about that, just how to kind of teach kids you know what money is, the language, the vocabulary, the significance around it, and just how you think about that from an emotional and sort of utilitarian standpoint, etc. And if you don't mind, I kind of want to jump in and, and talk about, you know, your story that you shared with me earlier. Uh, you experienced some trauma when you were younger, and you discussed a lot about how this has impacted your feelings 
I mean, of course, around just who you are today, yeah. your identity, but right. also your family and how it relates to money and how you've framed these sorts of things in language. So would you mind sharing that with us right now? Yeah, no. So um, so I say that my first speaking gig um, happened when I was five years old, and it was at the Boston, right back in the city, um, Municipal City Courthouse, and I was um, testifying against my abuser. Um, it was a, a child care provider who sexually molested and abused me when I was three and a half years old. And it was, you know, it's interesting. It's like, I don't know any other story. It's how I grew up. Um, And then my parents stood behind me and um, supported me in my truth and helped me to put closure around that. Uh, That was really important to my mom specifically. I remember her saying, you know, I just wanted you to have it close. I wanted, I wanted to, to put it to bed for you so that it wasn't something that you're going to continue to live on hanging over your head. And my mom actually became an activist as a result of that experience. And she helped get legislation passed to support, um, survivors of sexual abuse and, um, children specifically and their parents in, um, being heard. And, uh, and on my journey as an entrepreneur now, actually last year, we made a significant donation to an organization um, on the seacoast in New Hampshire that supports the prevention and, um, and protection, essentially, of survivors of domestic abuse and uh, sexual violence. It's called Haven, New Hampshire. So mm-hmm. I see that that part of my story, while very traumatic and um, unfathomable, right? I'm a mother of a four-and-a-half-year-old right now, and I cannot even comprehend what... Uh, one, my parents were going through, and and also they were essentially ousted from the family. I mean, we weren't supported. Um, that and that's a thing that really happens a lot because it's really? yes, because it is um, it's shameful. And it was from an extended family member, so it was. And this happens a lot. I mean, it's one in four girls and one in six boys are survivors of sexual abuse to some extent, and that's only what is reported. Yeah. So this is really important. And I think what, what really matters at the, like the, the nuts and bolts of this story is that um, while I had a lot of support, my parents were vigilant. They, my, I got counseling support and all those things. There's still so much shame that comes with that experience and also acknowledging as a young kid, like really putting the pieces together as a child that uh, because that's the only level of comprehension we really have when we're so young. You know, our brains oh, yeah. aren't even developed yet to a certain point. And so for me, I thought, man, if I didn't say what happened, then my family, my mom's family wouldn't have abandoned us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wouldn't be, you know, my mom wouldn't miss her mom, you know, and that was the truth. And, and my mom was, didn't, didn't put that onto me, but it's just something that I felt, you know? And so how that translates into life as we go and how this gets to money is that I created this story for myself around my own self-worth, you know, like me being, wrong or causing pain for people because I shared my truth. And so I really like lived with that, the weight of that. And I actually ended up having developing an eating disorder in my teens, which I know is related because it was just a a way to control something because it it was painful. Mm -hmm. I was a, I was a division one athlete. I was a high level um, soccer player and I was training all the time and which was really easy way to kind of hide that, you know, it was like being this overachiever and just running all day, every day to try to earn that college scholarship. But I was abusing myself sort of like from the inside out. Mm -hmm. So as you could imagine, you know, living with that kind of reality within myself and um, daily experience, when it came to money and value, it wasn't something in my family that we talked 
very well of. My parents worked very hard, worked lots of jobs. They definitely struggled financially in my childhood. Um, and I made it mean something about my innate worth. It was easy to use money as almost like a, as a weapon against me, you know, in the war that I had waged against myself. So I was using food. I used body image. Um, money was an easy stand in for that as well. You know, and what the, the point is, is that really what lives underneath this, Tyler, is that our relationships with ourselves, our self-concept, the way that we really truly feel about ourselves deep down is the experience that we're going to have in the world, in every realm, in our relationships, in our roles as parents, in our careers, of course, in the way that we show up. It's the thing that haunts us in a lot of ways. And so that's, that's the thing that I'm always, I think, going to be working on to a certain degree because it was just ingrained at such a young age. Mm-hmm. First of all, thank you so much for sharing this story. Yeah. I really appreciate that you're willing to be so candid. It's so important, though, to point out or reiterate that you, the things that you're doing right now, like you just mentioned you were a D1 athlete. Like, that's no joke. You were the captain of your soccer team. That's not an easy thing to do by any means. Like, that's a huge achievement. And then you were in a very successful position working at the school thereafter at UNH um, at the sort of the corporate level, you know, still in the athletic realm. Now you've written a book and you, I think you just told me that you came from Lewis Howe's mastermind and you were with, you know, Ty Lopez and and Alex Mayer, the owners of Mentorbox. Yeah, Mm -hmm. like you're, you're doing some big things now. Like you have... You've, in a lot of ways, made it, quote unquote, and you know that that can be debated what that actually means. Right. But at the end of the day, you're you seem to be happy right now. You you have frameworks for how to you know develop yourself and and look within yourself and find that true sort of self worth understanding. And one of the things that fascinated me most when we were talking earlier is how you is is the language conversation that we had. So giving yourself the identities through the language that you use and and having that kind of establish, you know, who you are and what you're pursuing. And you mentioned that in this traumatic incident that you suffered, you know, you, you're not a victim of it. You don't like to be thought of as a victim. And can you just talk a little bit more about that and how you think of yourself now in, in this moment in time, what that means to you and how you identify yourself, knowing that that happened, but being where you are today? Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that, um, and I don't know if this was something that was instilled in me by my parents, which I, I tend to think it was, but probably not in the most direct way that I, I think about it in my own mind now, but I just knew that, you know, living my life as a victim was not very aspirational and was not going to move me in the direction of, of my dreams and the things that I really wanted in my life. And I remember being a young person, with big dreams. In fact, I remember thinking after all of this, like, because it was very, it was very intense. You know, if I think back on my childhood in those early days, I feel like I grew up really quickly because I kind of had to, Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, be able to communicate with adults at a very young age in ways that most children don't. I mean, I look at my daughter who's four and a half right now, and I just think, no way, you know, like we're working on like, this is your name. So when, <laughs> if you get lost at the airport, like what's your mom that's, and dad's name? Like, let's yeah, go over this, you know, it, it's a little unbelievable, but I also, I, you know, I went to this place of recognition that, you know, this, I'm not, this is not going to be for not mm-hmm. right. So I didn't go through all of this for nothing. You know, I didn't, I didn't like have that courage and go in there and stand in that courtroom and tell that story just to like, wilt away. Mm -hmm. That's the voice of a survivor. And I think that it really, 
the difference in between the two is really about energy mm-hmm. and intention. And I just knew that I had a lot to do here with this life of mine. And I knew at age five, I mean, I had visions of myself already that young of me writing my story, writing books, standing on stages, empowering other people, because I knew, because I was in group um, group therapy with other kids who had much, much more just horrific situations that they were dealing with than I did. And I remember thinking, you know what? If we are, we're all experiencing this, then there have to be other kids who have too, and there have to be other people who feel lost too. And I don't know like what it was. Like I just was instilled with this knowledge at a really young age. And I remember my parents, like they just stood by me. They, my mom taught me about the word courage. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I used that to like really move myself through. I was an elite gymnast at a young age too. So athletics played a huge role in my life of um, like therapy and outlet and a, a place for me to uh, in- engage my mind and my body to do something powerful and to feel powerful in my body. And I think that those things in and of themselves are really what moved me through um, from that sort of like wave of, of victimhood to really stepping into this realm of survivorhood, survivorship. I'm not sure which word is <laughs> right for that. <laughs> hey, I hate to interrupt this conversation with Amber Lilliestrom, but I want to let you know where you can learn more about her money mindset. She recorded a full series of videos on how we think and speak about money. But per usual, she recorded that series exclusively for MentorBox. If you want to access that and much, much more, be sure to visit MentorBox.com and become a member today. Okay, back to the show. We're talking about two words here. So, you know, victim versus survivor. And I've had experience around these things. So we, we also share another thing in common. We worked in the college newspaper, um, different newspapers at different times. But my you know closest experience to this was reporting on it on campus. There were some incidents at Boston University where this was an, a, a pretty big issue. And reporting on it gave me a very interesting view because as a team, we had to come together and say, how do we speak about these situations in a way that is safe and sensitive and thoughtful and also, like, reporting accurately, you know, that's always just so, so difficult, especially with some cases where, you know, not there were no witnesses and that sort of thing. And what I learned is that those terms, you know, victim versus survivor, it's, it's, it's an individual sort of decision. It's, you know, a self-identification. And like you said, I, I love hearing that it's kind of about energy and how you come about that. And I think that so many people don't really realize that, you know, the, these words might have, like, dictionary definitions and you might be inclined to say oh but like this is literally where you are like so this makes you a victim or this makes you a survivor but that's just like not how language works at the end of the day it's, it's a very personal you know in that sense pragmatic experience more than it is you know just putting a label on something and it's fascinating to me that ultimately there is a label you know, there, there's not much that you can do to escape that labeling. And maybe, you know, there are some frameworks out there for thinking about this through a different lens. But as a survivor, you know, this is still very much part of your story. And it's it's there, you know. And it's it's just, it's so remarkable to me that you are where you are now. And I just, I'm so respectful that you're able to share this story with me. Well, I would say, I think that it's like, you know, there was a time when, um, I mean, I was so young, so I could have identified as a victim. Mm -hmm. And then I I think that the, it's really a mindset. 
And so then shifting from that state of victimhood into survivor. And I think that that actually is a really important distinction if we think about the Me Too movement Mm -hmm. and how part of the reason why I believe the Me Too movement had so much traction is because women were transitioning from being victims to survivors and they were using it as like their battle cry in a way, like, like Me Too. And I felt ashamed that this happened to me. And, and, you know, I, I remember reading the post when that was first coming out and I've been telling stories about things that I remember, you know, men and women in, in, in their lives, just being like completely blown away. And there, there are stories in my lifetime that definitely fit into the bucket of victimhood that I've never, you know, publicly shared. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what it was, was, was an opportunity for women to say, you know what, this has been my reality and I'm not choosing that I am rising. And I understand that, yes, there are there are some individuals who've used it as an opportunity to be victims and whatever. You know, there's there can be controversy around this, but but in my mind, as as a a you know proud member of of that movement, who's been mm-hmm. personally impacted by it, uh, I see it as as an opportunity to say, "Yep, me too, sisters and brothers, not just women, mm-hmm. all of us," and and we continue to rise. And the more we bring these things out into the light, and the more we are willing to have these conversations, this is why my mom became an activist back then when it was not really a popular time back in the early or mid to early 80s to be an activist. You know, she stood on the state house steps and had this address and it was all in the the newspaper and all these things. And she was standing on behalf of her daughter, you know, and it's, it's in my blood, you know, it's in my blood. So if my mom can, can do that, then that's my responsibility to do that too, you know? And so when we went and made that donation, my daughter was there with me. You know, she we were, she was there. She was in the picture. Like, we are going to continue to stand in honor of those who are using their voices, those who maybe have not had the ability or the courage to yet or, or you know, and stand on behalf of them mm-hmm. and in support of something that's really important to us and put positive energy into the pool around it, right? Yeah, put yeah. the positive, like, let's feed the positive and let's use, here's the other piece, Little Amber, little five-year-old Amber, makes me emotional to talk about it, was, was really the one signing that check. Mm-hmm. You know, like that was part of, that was part of the dream. Yeah. That was part of the dream was I'm going to create something where I can give back in a positive way. So maybe this doesn't have to happen in someone else's family. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe, you know, it's like when I was driving here, I shared with you, a, a man walked up and he had a sign and he said, anything could help. I'm, you know, hungry, whatever. And I grabbed the apple out of my bag and gave it to him. Like that costs me nothing to support another human, to extend love to another human, to be able to help somebody with something that I had the ability to give. Like that, that is a definition of abundance. Mm-hmm. So you're giving back a lot now. Yeah, all that's, the time, that's, all the time. That's wonderful. And I, uh, Haven, New Hampshire was. Yep, that was the organization. Another, we also support an organization called AIR New Hampshire, which is Arts and Reach, which is, um, girls who uh, had like an after-school program for girls who have, you know, a little bit of challenging upbringings. Mm -hmm. And um, we actually, at my Ignite Your Soul Summit live event this year, we had them come and perform on stage. They got to sing the song Brave in front of a room full of 200 women. It was just like, I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, right? Mm -hmm. And so we presented a check and supported their mission. And it's so fun to be able to do this. Like every single one of my programs and all the things I'm doing in my business, a portion of the proceeds go back to support organizations like Haven and Air New Hampshire. And that's just super, super important to me that I'm socially, consciously connected um, in my community in that way. That's really wonderful. You mentioned is one in four women. Yeah. And these are just the reported statistics. Girls, yeah, girls, women, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... 
What do you say then to those that are ultimately still unfortunately going unreported? I mean, mm-hmm. the the girls and women and, and the boys and men that mm-hmm. are dealing with this that have that for whatever reason haven't had the space, whether it's you know, emotional or physical, mental, whatever it is, to come out and and kind of make that transition from vic- victimhood to being a survivor. Yeah. So, um, and I've had many, many, many women in this journey now that I'm doing the work that I'm doing report, like share with me, you know, in an intimate, whether like a Facebook message or on a coaching call or something, very traumatic stories that they've never told anyone before. And I believe that it, you know, part of it is giving, putting words to your story with someone that you trust. And there are organizations like Haven, New Hampshire, that can support you, you know, that can help you work through it if you don't have someone in your immediate circle. And and I always direct people who report their stories to me to Haven because they are trained professionals that can support with whether it's helping them get therapy, if they're actually in imminent danger, um, which is That's the case sometimes. Thing, yeah. Yep. Um, literally like getting them the support that they need. Uh, if they're in a domestic violence situation. So I think it's really important um, that if you're listening to this and you or someone you know is impacted, it's contact, I mean, honestly, go to havennewhampshire.org and they can help anybody in the entire United States get whatever support that they need. And I, and I trust them indefinitely. But I, I think it is, it's, it's sharing with a trusted and safe person in your life, you know, and, and getting that sort of nightmare that's playing over and over inside of you out into the light so that you can start unpacking it and start doing the work on it and getting the support that you need in that process. Therapy in my lifetime has been huge. I'm so grateful that uh, I've had really great therapy throughout my journey, you know, on and off in different seasons of life so that I could, here it is, you know, I know that if there's some sort of huge emotional hangup that's stopping me, that's making me feel, you know, whatever rainbow of emotions is happening to make me feel, but if it's something that's coming up all the time, I, you, you better believe that I'm going to go get the support that I need to start doing that work because it's going to inevitably not just impact my mission and the work I want to do in the world, but the way that I show up for my family, for my daughter, for my friends, the way I show up in my career, you know, the way I show up in my physical body. I don't want to have things that I'm, that I'm avoiding and I'm afraid of. I want to walk right towards them and do the work on them. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can take it up another step then. This might be a more difficult question because it's much more personal, of course, um, or it's much more individual. But how do survivors then, or even people who are still in that stage of, you know, victimhood, how do they essentially, you know, get to a place that like you have gotten to where you've kind of found a way to take your internal struggles and turn that into, you know, principles for success or, you know, not the direct struggles, but the, the things that you learned and the, the time that you spent in that space. How do you advise, what, what steps can people take to transition or even utilize that sort of thing as an empowering experience or an, an educational one that can either be shared or just implemented towards success in some way? Well, um, I just want to say this because this is coming through really loud and clear first and foremost. It's that whoever's listening to this and if and if you are someone who um, is a survivor or is in this space of victimhood, one, it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. It's like I could not hear that enough. It's not your fault. And that was a hard pill for me to swallow for a really long time. And so I think we have to just like kind of put like a little loving like capsule around that for a minute just to allow people to hear that it's not your fault. And from there, you have the opportunity to make a decision. 
about what you want going forward and how you want to do that. And so for me, there was a very um, distinct moment in time for me around like 29, 30, when I uh, remembered thinking to myself, I know that I'm going to be the mother of a little girl someday. I just knew it. It's something I've known all my life. I just knew and I wasn't pregnant. I mean, I had no reason necessarily to like physiologically believe that that was happening, but I just felt it. I knew that I would be mom to a little girl. And the reality was, is I had an eating disorder for 15 years. And it wasn't like the traditional, you would notice looking at me, right? And so I thought, well, textbook, you know, I don't look like someone who quote unquote has an eating disorder. So, so you're just being silly, Amber, you're just being extra. But when I went and finally committed to just getting therapy, it wasn't like I was in an actual institution or anything like that, though that is necessary in some cases for people. And it's incredibly helpful to go and be doing that concentrated work if you need that kind of support. Mm -hmm. Um, But I remember when the therapist said to me, you know, you have an eating disorder, Amber. And, And I remember looking at her and thinking, no, I don't. I don't look like what you see in the books and on the pages and all this. And she said, well, okay, well, I'm just gonna let you kind of like sit with that. But I think part of it was, I didn't really want to have that label. I didn't want to like self-identify and own it. I just, I knew that it was pretty messed up. I knew that the fact that when I opened the refrigerator and I felt like crying, that this was a problem, that going to like a barbecue with friends was like a super stress inducing experience for me that I needed to do that work because I'm going to be eating food for the rest of my life. So I probably need to, you know, make peace with this. And so when I got in there to do the work, so as, as you asked, I made a decision. I made a decision to go and get support with whatever that looked like on my journey. I did the work. I did not let myself out of the work. That's the hardest part. So we say that we want to do something and then we go to the first thing and we're like, no, this isn't for me. Like, this is going to be way too hard. I don't really want to do it. I did not let myself out of it. And I, and I also had the the byproduct of knowing that one day I was going to be the mom to a little girl. I mean, it's the story that I told myself that helped motivate me. So I think about like, who are you doing this for beyond just yourself? I needed to do it for somebody beyond myself because I, at that point, I wasn't able to do it just for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people probably are in that place. Sure. Um, and so fast forward, like not even a year and a half after that, I was pregnant with a little girl. And it's, I'm happy to share that it's not even a thing anymore. The food stuff is just like completely good, you know, and I'm, and I'm healthy and grounded, but it's because I've committed to doing the work. And so I just want to invite people to, you can't start in the future. You can't really start in the past. You got to start with where you are Mm -hmm. and just, you know, really begin committing to doing this deeper work to release the stuff that's been holding you back. But in a lot of ways, it sounds like you sort of prophesied that you would yeah. <laughs> have this daughter and this would all come full circle. Well, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a huge manifester and visualizer and I have been yeah. my whole life. So remember I said to you when I was five years old, I was like, I'm going to be on stages writing books. Like, mm-hmm. hi, yeah. doing it, <laughs> you know, knew that I was going to be a division one athlete. Hi, did that. Right. And so I'm one I thought of, I was going to be, t- <laughs> I'm one of those people good. that, well, I also wanted to be a pop star and that hasn't happened yet. Um, still yeah, there's still time. Always time. <laughs> so I am, I've always been this like vivid visualizer and I, I experience things before they happen. And part of really around the, the, the sentiment and the energy of this book, it's, it's finding as much joy in the visualization experience as you do in the physical. Mm-hmm. Now that might sound crazy to be people are like, I want, but Amber, I want the money in the bank. <laughs> so, I mean, that's cool that I can imagine it in there. I want those shoes now. Yes. But when you get really good at this and I have like a thousand stories, like manifesting our dream house on the lake to my live events. I mean, mm-hmm. when I walked out on the stage the first time for my live event, 
it was like I had lived that a thousand times because I actually did. I, and down to the smallest details of like what it would sound like when my shoes walked on the floor to the, the base of the speakers, to the <laughs> lights, to what I was wearing. Like I have so much fun with that. And I let myself just play with my own visualizations. And then when I get to experience the physical, it's like that much sweeter because now it's real and I can actually taste the fruit. Yeah. Another little, you know, ditty here for us is like, let's just try to have more fun. You know, mm. like let's just stop being so serious all the time. Yeah. If I think back to my childhood self, like, all she really wanted to do was play. And she had to go stand in these courtrooms and have these serious conversations and be called a victim and all this stuff and go to therapy. And she's like, she just wanted to play. You know, <laughs> little Amber was like, can we just go to on the playground now? Like, I'm good. Not like, I am li- literally good. So I might invite people, this is a little exercise, to tap into that former version of yourself at whatever time on the spectrum that maybe your trauma occurred and just ask that version of you, like, what does he or she need? Mm-hmm. You know, like what, what's there? And when I've done that, it was the, the child version. She just wanted to play. So like, that's what I do for a living now. I have fun and I play and I help other women who are also former girls uh, tap into the, the things that maybe they, they lost somewhere along the way. I want to point out, I don't know if there's much to dig into, but you refer to your past self as she, whereas I think I would be inclined to say, you know, I in mm-hmm. the past. And oh, yeah. I think that's an interesting sort of identity yeah. choice there. It's like, yeah. what what are you saying about that past self? Like, obviously, we all change in many ways. I'm like, is that a different person? What is identity? I, whoa, so, you know? <laughs> whoa. I mean, I really do think of her as a, as a different person. And, you know, this is the thing that could literally just move me to tears because I think about that version of me. I think about, you know, the one who went and tried out for the ODP soccer team when her parent like was the biggest loser on the field and had like the worst shin guards and didn't have all the cool gear that oh. all the other girls did. But that yeah. was the, those were doorways. Like those versions of me opened doorways to my dreams. And I think about the one who walked down the hallway and gave her notice when she, you know, like had one paying client at the time when I walked away from my 10-year career, like kind of crazy. But she was brave enough to say, and, and she believed enough in her in what she was creating that she went for it. And I'm so grateful for her because I would not be sitting on this couch right now if it weren't for all those versions of me that came before. Well, I'm happy that you're here as well. Hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess we can, we can cut it off there. Um, do you want to give us uh, a quick shout out to your own uh, social media accounts sure. and any other places? Uh, again, the book is Master Your Money Mind. Yes. Um, the game-changing guidebook to transform your mindset and daily habits to attract massive abundance. Yes, so, sir. And where can they find this as well? You guys can head to masteryourmoneymind.com, really simple, and grab your copy of it. Grab a copy for your friend or maybe mom and dad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys can uh, find me over on this social, social frameworks, uh, Instagram. I love Instagram so much, and I do Instagram stories all the time at my lake house, so please come and watch our (laughs) behind-the-scenes stories at Amber Lillystrom. My website is amberlillystrom.com. I'm on Facebook, uh, and I also have a podcast called The Amber Lillystrom Show. Can you spell your name for us? Yes, it is Amber, and then L-I-L-Y-E-S-T-R-O-M. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much. It was great having you on. Everybody else, we will see you on the next podcast. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to the MentorBox podcast. If you want to learn more about what our authors as well as all of our authors teach, make sure to sign up at MentorBox.com. 
And if you like the MentorBox podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts, as that helps us get discovered by more people who will enjoy and be helped by what we do over here at MentorBox. Also, if you think of anyone who would enjoy or be helped by what we do here at MentorBox, be sure to let them know. We do what we do at MentorBox to try to make the world a better place through the incredible education our authors bring. And we can only do that through your help. So please help us spread the word. Again, thanks for listening. And we'll see you in the next MentorBox podcast.